0: The Sea and Conrad by William McFee. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Matt Parrott. The Sea and Conrad by William McFee. It was Francis Grierson, some ten years ago, in a brief article in the New Age, who first called attention to the very remarkable qualities. Of a book called The Nigger of the Narcissus, just then published by Heinemann at a shilling. It was a slim, scarlet, easily held book, designed to read in bed, pack in a grip, lend to a friend, or slip in the pocket against a rail journey in the middle of the day, when the morning paper had been read and the evening journals were not yet on the stands. It may have been, by design, that this article came out just at that moment, for Heinemann was an admirable tactician. Bad literature was abhorrent to him, as may be seen by the books bearing his imprimatur, but he doubtless saw no reason why a man who published fine books should not let it get about, or should refrain from mentioning it in a friendly way. It may be remarked that a number of English publishers at that time were in the habit of issuing books in a manner that can only be described as virtuously surreptitious they did good by stealth it would not do to say that any house ever published a book without informing its shipping department but it amounted to that in the long run mr hindman was not that sort of publisher francis herson's article appeared in the new age the slim red book appeared in the bookstores and a new light shone before the present writer. For the first time in his life, he became aware of the existence of a writer named Conrad. It was an extraordinary experience. It was also a very chastening one, for the present writer had not only written, but published a book of his own, dealing with the sea and with seamen. He had grown up in a genuine tradition of the mercantile Marine, sea captains had been so close to him all his life that he accepted them as part of the surrounding landscape a long period of literary and artistic gestation in chelsea had somewhat alienated him from the rich humanity of his seafaring relatives and here in the nigger of the narcissus he found them again transfigured to heroic dimensions like the somber and enormous shadows of grown-ups on the nursery wall. It was in Glasgow, on an evening in late summer, that the present writer walked along Sochihall Street and, turning down Radnor and Finiston Streets, entered the Queen's Dock, where his ship lay. The nigger of the Narcissus was under his arm. The rays of the setting sun still threw a twilight and roseate glamour over the interminable ridge of the hills of old Kilpatrick, and with the story of the nigger yet vibrating in his brain, he made his way up the gangway and descended the short ladder to the iron deck of the elderly freighter. It is not too much to say that he regarded her shapely old whole and comfortable quarters with profound affection, built some fifteen years before for the nine-knot Australian trade. She was now relegated to the shorter voyages to the Mediterranean. We had been a long time together, commander, mates, engineers, including the donkeyman, the carpenter, and the engine storekeeper. The last three were much more like the characters in a dream play than quick active seamen. The donkeyman was a Turk and lived in a sort of solitary and immaculate retirement in a three-cornered cabin in the forecastle the carpenter was a norwegian and haunted the stirring-house aft where he shut himself up and fashioned models of fabulous sailing-ships the storekeeper who owned to the entirely inadequate name of frank freshwater was a willing and diminutive englishman with a large nose and an immense military moustache he was known to speak both donkeyman and chips and in fact may have been created for the sole purpose of communicating between them. But even that degree of loquacity dried up on nearing Glasgow. He was the sad proprietor of a ferocious virago who would appear on the quay with miraculous promptitude. The moment the gangway slid over and wait relentlessly for him to appear—he never did appear, it is necessary to add—the whole ship's company became enthusiastic, sporting accessories to the fact of poor old Freshwater's unobtrusive escape, while some hardened married man goaded the virago to paroxysms of absurd rage, until the dock policeman walked stolidly in our direction, preening his moustache, and the principal bond between all of us there on that ship was a very honest liking for the chief. The Turk once said to the present writer, who was second engineer at the time, chief." He is my face and was so prostrated with that display of dramatic and emotional volubility that he did not speak again for a fortnight, unless he talked to himself. To Frank Freshwater, the chief presented another and equally admirable facet. One of the truest men who ever stood in shoe leather. Frank's estimate is quoted because it was a very accurate description. The chief was just that and as the present rider came aboard with the nigger of the Narcissus under his arm, he beheld the burly form of the chief, standing by the door of the port alleyway, stripped to the waist, his large, pale, hairy arms folded, his bosom screened from view by his patriarchal beard, smoking a cigarette in the end of a long black holder. "'Well,' said he, taking the holder from his lips and looking down at the great curve of his abdomen, did you have a good time? Simple words expressing a simple, kindly consideration. Yet by virtue of the magical tale just read, the present writer saw those words in a new and enchanting light. He saw, perhaps for the first time in his literary life, the true function of dialogue as a resonant and plungent element through which the forms and characters of men can be projected upon the retina of the reader." he became aware of a more subtle music in the very shape and timbre of the long familiar phrases, and behind the amiable, superior, and valuable shipmate. He suddenly saw that quiet, attentive, bearded man as a character in a book, the unconscious victim of a future work of art. This is a great stride in life, to get behind the switchboard, as one may say and see even for a brief illuminating moment the various resistances and insulations, the connection to earth, without which one's impact upon humanity, is a floating, foolish pose. The author who does this for you is forever memorable, quite apart from his intrinsic value to the public. I said, yes, I had a good time, and I added with a curious feeling of diffident exultation, i have a book here i would like you to read it seems to me rather good he took it and at once made that faint and somewhat vague gesture which invariably accompanied a gentle murmur of apology about his glasses turning to the low door leading to his room we passed in there was no dynamo on that ship and a study lamp with a brown shade stood on a little desk by the settee adjusting a pair of spectacles on his nose the chief opened the book and began to read the title page. He stood there, a remarkable nude figure with his shining bald head and venerable beard, holding the volume at arm's length and looking down through his glasses with severe attention. The first page and the second were red and turned, and he never moved. So I left him and went round to my cabin on the starboard side. The ship was moving under the coal tips early next morning, and it was due to this that some time after midnight I was still about, and noticed the light still burning in his room. I went in. He was standing there, turning the last immortal pages. He had put on an old patrol coat, and had buttoned it absently over his beard. I have often thought that Conrad must have met him somewhere. He is so exactly presented in part of darkness as the amiable engineer of the riverboat who put his beard in a bag to keep it clean the discerning will recall that person's bald head whose hair conrad whimsically observes had fallen to his chin where it had prospered he lowered his head and looked at me over his glasses as i made some professional remark and laid the book down a funny thing he observed in his quite precise voice This nigger says a girl chucked the third engineer of a Rennie boat for him. He stroked his beard with a broad, powerful palm. You know, I was third of a Rennie boat in my young days. He meditated for a moment, and added, That book makes you feel, somehow, a notable reflection. And as time went on, it became a habit of the present writer to experiment on his shipmates by noting their reactions to the works of Conrad. The point to remember is that neglecting certain easily explained failures men reacted in direct ratio to their integrity of character the cunning the avaricious and the ignoble are not admirers of conrad there is something in the style and the spirit which reaches surely and inexorably down into a man's moral resources and sounds them for him to those who in the jargon of the red-blooded fraternity want a story it is to be feared our author does not appeal this was exemplified by typhoon which was tried upon a naval reserve officer a brisk efficient resourceful young man with an acute examination brain his criticism was brief and emphatic you could write the whole story on a couple of sheets of foolscap," he grumbled there's nothing to it too far-fetched as well he shut the book with a sudden closing of fingers and thumb and passed it back promptly forgetting the whole affair he is neither cunning avaricious nor ignoble but he is afflicted with the modern conception of efficiency for him romance lies in the past of highwaymen knights in shining armour and machiavellian cardinals of inconceivable obliquity to a writer who has indulged his humor by watching seafaring folk in their reactions as mentioned above these collected prefaces which conrad has written for the sunday edition of his works under the title of notes on my books have a very special interest they tell with a direct and disarming candour the authentic origin of the tales the troublesome enthusiast who is forever seeking The fiction which is founded on fact will get small comfort here, for here are the facts. It is the penalty of success in the fictional art to illumine the obscure experiences of worthy members of the public and convince them that such and such an affair actually happened. These folks are very timid at trying their wings. They dread leaving the solid earth behind. It is a positive comfort to them to feel that the things which have touched their hearts are only the bright shadows of the hard actualities under their feet the chief engineer to whom i presented lord jim not the beloved and bearded personality described above was an interesting variant of this a hard-bitten portly individual an excellent officer and well-read withal he deprecated in its entirety the canradian philosophy and literary method yes he knew the story out east as did everybody else a ship called the jetta it was which ran over a sunken derelict and broke her back the officers left her who wouldn't a million chances to one against her lasting ten minutes conrad had idealized the mate jim that was all that was the word he used idealized he was a blunt englishman with his emotions planted almost inaccessibly deep down among his racial prejudices. He objected, really, to anybody's discussing the fundamental motives of man. It was not the thing to do. Possibly the slight imponderable irony, which almost always creeps into Conrad's descriptions of seagoing engineers, was responsible for my friend's irritation. Leaving out the worthy Solomon Rot, and Typhoon, conrad seems to have been something less than fortunate in his engineer types at the other end of the scale the present writer preserves a most lively memory of his introduction to youth by the third mate of a beef ship running into london river an alert and cheerful college boy who had been through the hard grueling of an apprenticeship in sail, he was at that stage of the twenties when one is equally interesting to the women of thirty the men of forty, and the mothers of fifty. And it was he, who, as we were passing the watch, below, in friendly comparison of books, read, suddenly lighted up all over his fresh, ruddy features, and said, in a glow of delicious enthusiasm, I say, haven't you read Youth? My word, but you must read Youth. It's ripping. The finest tale I ever read in my life. And he stuck to it in spite of anything the others might say. He had been caught by the extraordinary glamour of the thing, the superb simplicity of the narrative, the cumulative power of the finale. He would never be the same being again after reading that tale. Here we have an achievement for which there is no adequate name save genius. Other books there are of Conrad's, which enshrine no memories of a shipmate's admiration or dislike. There is Nostromo, for instance, that little red masterpiece of creative literature ordered from london during the war and read while voyaging between port said and saloniki this tale of a seaboard made the monotonous business of naval transport seem a dim and ridiculous fragment of unreality the huge size of the canvas the sweep and surge of the narrative the sudden revealing phrases the balanced cadence of the sentences The single heart-notes, calling to some obscure emotion of the soul, all these made their appeal and created an imperishable memory. And there is a point it is pertinent to make here, in view of this new volume of notes on life and letters, that is doing Conrad a disservice to characterize him as a sea-writer. One does not call Turner a sea-painter. The highest genius does not shackle itself with such very trivial restrictions. Some of the finest of Conrad's tales have nothing whatever to do with the sea, notably *Heart of darkness, under-western eyes, and an outcast of the islands. If it be not misunderstood, the present writer would like to say that going to sea will have had very little influence. Upon the final verdict of posterity upon Conrad's work, His philosophy is his own and fundamentally antagonistic to the ideas of most seafarers. His technical method is provoking to seamen who have a very different fashion of telling a tale, as different, in fact, as the average shipmaster is from Charlie Marlowe. There is, as Conrad himself remarks, nothing speculative in a sailor's mentality. The meaning of his story is on the outside. Conrad is entirely speculative. He tells the story almost in absence of mind. He will bring you right up to a moment of almost unendurable dramatic intensity, and then devote half a dozen pages to depicting the psychological phenomena attendant upon it. We who are gathered here consider the labor justified by the unique results The red-blooded folk whose conception of drama is as rudimentary as the struggle to enter a crowded subway train are naively infuriated when deprived of their precious story. There are classes of novel readers who will not have Conrad at any price. They lack patience and are not compensated by any perfection of prose diction which may inadvertently come under their notice. For them the donkeyman the carpenter, and storekeeper, mentioned earlier in this essay, were simply taciturn non-entities. For us, they are a bizarre trinity of lonely souls floating in mysterious proximity through a universe of ironic destinies. For us, there are the indistinct shadows of men like Axel Haste, Captain McGuire, and Falk. The present writer feels a special debt of gratitude for these notes, on life and letters since they include a number of fugitive pieces occasional contributions to reviews which he missed at the time owing to being in some distant harbor there is the very indignant digression for example upon the loss of the titanic and it is worthy of note that when he deigns to speak of his contemporaries conrad is exasperatingly unaware of the existence of the gods in. The best-selling universe he has much to say on the contrary of henry james of dostoevsky and of anatole france these articles are exactly what one would expect from the author urbane and dignified criticism of one artist by another conrad has been honored similarly by h g wells whose review of Almer's folly and an outcast of the islands is a masterpiece of critical insight Yet one returns again to the prefaces. One has here the feeling of being shown round the studio by the master. This, he seems to say, is exactly how it was done. He deprecates gently, and one hopes sincerely, the formidable accretion of legendary romanticism which has collected about his career. We are to believe that these people in his books never actually existed, They are the magnificent fabrications of the author's brain. A hint here, a whispered conversation there, a newspaper yarn over yonder, and lo, fifteen years later, William or Falk or Razumov or Nostromo emerges from obscurity and assumes an enigmatic attitude of having existed since the dawn of time. This will be very disappointing to those prosaic enthusiasts who like to hear that all great characters in fiction have their originals in history and the present writer must confess he had weakly imagined that the secret agent was the happy result of a long-past familiarity with the strange folk who hang around legations and live in disreputable lodgings off Greek street or the box hall, bridge road and yet of what avail are these prying speculations there seems still to survive in us much of that ghoulish predilection of the middle ages for relics. We will go to a museum to look with veneration upon the authentic trinkets of the illustrious dead. So in these notes on my books, one must resist the temptation to linger over the personal revelations with vulgar curiosity. They are for our information and comfort, but they hold no anodyne for pain or elixir of youth whereby we may regain our lost illusions. They must in no case divert our attention from one preface in particular, a preface set apart by virtue of its history and intention. It would be much more just to call it the confession of faith of a supreme master of prose. The present writer is unable to speak of it without emotion. It enshrines in resonant and perfect phrases the secret convictions of his heart. It is the crowning gift of a great artist, and when one pauses to condense in a few words an adequate comprehension of that artist's work, one turns instinctively to this long-suppressed preface to the nigger of the Narcissus. As one reads, one recalls the literary art, he says must strenuously aspire to the plasticity of sculpture to the colour of painting and to the magic suggestiveness of music which is the art of arts and it is only through complete unswerving devotion to the perfect blending of form and substance it is only through an unremitting never discouraged care for the shape and ring of sentence that an approach can be made for plasticity to colour and that the light of magic suggestiveness may be brought to play for an evanescent instant over the commonplace surface of words, of the old, old words, worn thin, defaced by ages of careless usage. And again, of the writer, he speaks to our capacity for delight and wonder, to the sense of mystery surrounding our lives, to our sense of pity and beauty and pain, to the latent feeling of fellowship with all creation, and to the subtle but invincible conviction of solidarity that knits together the loneliness of innumerable hearts, to the solidarity in dreams, in joy, in sorrow, in aspiration, in the illusions, in hope, in fear, which binds men to each other, which binds together all humanity, the dead to the living and the living, to the unborn so he sums it up beyond this in placing the bounds of the author's art it is impossible to go one is permitted only to add for the purpose of supplying a fitting conclusion the final paragraph the humble and industrious among us may smile incredulously yet toil on with a better heart when they read that our aim should be to arrest, rest for the space of a breath the hands busy about the work of the earth and compel men entranced by the sight of distant goals to glance for a moment at the surrounding vision of form and colour of sunshine and shadows to make them pause for a look for a sigh for a smile such is the aim difficult and evanescent and reserved only for a very few to achieve but sometimes by the deserving and the fortunate even that task is accomplished and when it is accomplished behold all the truth of life is there a moment of vision a sigh a smile and a return to an eternal rest end of the sea and conrad by william mcphee